The following podcast is from Doxa Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org. Welcome to Doxa. Uh, if we're working through the uh, book of 1 Corinthians, we're going to be in here a while. I told you a couple weeks back, I wouldn't even tell you how long we'd be here anymore. We're just going to be here, just plan on it. And uh, there's a lot of stuff to cover here. That's why we're going to be here a long time. Um, we're covering not only here on Sunday mornings together when we gather to worship uh, on our Sunday morning gathering, we're also working through it together in our C groups, that's our community groups that meet at homes during the week. We currently have four of those. If you're not in one, I encourage you to be in one. You can see Dale in the plaid with the mother of pearl buttons, looking all church plannery for us today here in the front, and you got the beard, he's got the whole, you got the whole thing going on today, man. Church planner extraordinaire. And, or you can also see Burton back here, the, once again, the morning Michigan fan. Um, sorry, bro. He's a Browns fan and a Michigan fan, so this, I don't know. This is a tough life. Some vessels were chosen for honor and some for, dis, for dishonor. Um, we're, calling our, we're calling our series A Pretty Ugly Bride, and the whole idea that we talked about last week is how uh, Jesus, uh, by his blood, has made us beautiful before Christ. Like, we were all sinners. We all needed help, and he... he stood between us and the wrath of God and took the penalty that you and I had justly owed to us. And so in that way, his righteousness, God's righteousness itself covers you if you're a believer in Christ today. If you're not a believer in Christ, you're outside of that. But if you're a believer in Christ today, you are covered by that, that beautiful covering and you are beautiful. And yet, like, don't, like, we talked about last week, how many people, like, have, you don't have to raise your hand, but you've already messed up today. Like, you've already kind of, you know, your perfect record, if like if you're just starting over this morning, like it's already, they can like, you have some dark marks on your side. And so like that's the way that it is as Christian. Like you are beautiful by the covering of Jesus Christ, but yet you're still you and I'm still me. And we are being as believer, we are, as a believer in Christ, we are becoming more or should be becoming more and more like Jesus as time goes on. But that's a process that happens. And if you take a lot of people who are in this process of like being beautiful but yet being ugly at the same time and you put them all together and you, in a group that we call the church, it's going to be something that's both beautiful at times and yet also at times very ugly. And that's why most of us have had, if you've had any sort of background in church, any sort of history, you and I have probably had some nice run-ins with church, nice run-ins with Christians, and some pretty bad run-ins. And so church may for you have like a mixed taste in your mouth. It may be both bitter and be like nice at the same time, but we've been talking about how that's just kind of the, that's, the, that's, the, that's what it means to be a part of the church, that Paul planted this church in Corinth. He was Paul. He wrote most of the New Testament, and yet three and a half years later, he's writing this letter to the church at Corinth. It's his second letter. It's the only the first one that we have still in circulation today. That and he is going to get on, and he's already getting into the Corinthians about how they have forgotten some of the most important things that he spent months and months with them trying to established and they've already have forgotten. And that's just like sort of what it means to be a part of the church. It means to be a Christian that we forget. That's why every week when we gather here, we worship, we sing songs, songs that you probably heard before. The reason they're not new songs, the reason, the reason that they're, some of these words have been around for hundreds and hundreds of years is because you and I forget. 
The reason that I get up here or Dale or Jonathan or whoever gets up here to preach and we preach the gospel every week, like, look, there's really only, you probably figured it out if you've hung around with us very long, there's really only one message that we have, it's the gospel. And it's the gospel over and over and over again, the story of who Jesus is and what he did for us on our behalf. And the reason that we need to come and hear that every single week is because we forget. And the reason that we have communion every week, we take apart the body, the bread, and the dip it into the juice, which signifies the blood of Jesus, is to remember what he did for you and me because we forget. We forget. If you take a lot of people that forget and put us together in a church, in a group, and you say, all right, share life together, it's going to be full of some good stuff is going to be full of some bad stuff. And that's why we're looking at the book of Corinthians as we're learning about what it means to be the church that's in the middle of the, like a pretty ugly kind of bride. Meg and I just came back from Asheville. We got back last night about 8.30, 8.45. Really cool city. I love Asheville. Uh, we went to celebrate our anniversary, long overdue trip. Our anniversary was in 18th of September, we were married 15 years on that day. Isn't that amazing? And more amazing for her than it is for me that she put up with it that long. But so we, so we took a few days, like well, well earned, to go up to Asheville to spend some time together. And we had a really nice time most of the time. We had, so we had, a, we, we had a rocky start, but we ended very, we ended well. And, uh, you know, it's, I don't know. Anyway, we won't get into any of that. We'll have marriage counseling later on if you guys want to talk about it. We'll have a big group marriage counseling session. But uh, it ended really well. But at, one of the reasons we went to Asheville, we went there two years ago, uh, it's just a great city. Anybody ever been to Asheville, hung out any time there? It's a really cool place. And I, I find myself, every time I go to a place like 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 Asheville or uh, any place. I, I, there's very few places I've been to that I think, man, this is a terrible place. There's a few, I won't name them, but you know, most places I've been to that are a pretty cool place. Like I find myself thinking about like, how great would it be to live here? I mean, Asheville, like you're, you're there, like a, it's a beautiful city. You have the mountains all around. There's like, I'm not like what you would call outdoorsy, but even I get in Asheville and I'm like, hey, let's go hiking, which is something you would never hear coming from my mouth otherwise. Like, hey, wouldn't it be cool to go rafting? Like, like just crazy things coming out of my mouth. Like, wouldn't this be awesome? I, it's not, not like me. I'd rather be like sitting somewhere, reading a book, drinking a nice cup of coffee. But you get up there and like, wow, this is awesome. And they have amazing, the first time we went up there and we stayed downtown, we asked the person who checked us into the hotel, like, where should we go for dinner? Like, tell us someplace that's good. And she said, you you can't have a bad meal in downtown Asheville. We're like, yeah, 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 you're, you're paid to say that. But she was right. There is full of great restaurants. It's, the traffic's not bad. It's just a really cool place to go. And I find myself when I'm there or other places like that, like, wouldn't it be great to live here? Like, I want to, like, build a house on the side of the mountain and, and like, uh, chop my own wood and... <laughs> I don't know, like all the stuff they do in Asheville, grow a long beard like, like Dale has or like bushy beard and like, like be manly and like brew my own beer. I don't know, they, they do all kinds of cool stuff there all the time. And, and I get up there and I think, wouldn't it be great to, to live here and own a piece of that? And the reason that you do that, the reason that I do that, every, every time we go on vacation, we go someplace that's cool and you like, you want, like wouldn't it be great to own someplace here? Wouldn't it be great to live here? It's because you and I are always looking for Xanadu. We're looking for Shangri-La. We're looking for the perfect place. We're looking to live in paradise. 
And the reason that we're, that we're doing that is because is that's actually the reason most of, many of us live, end up living here at Myrtle Beach, right? Uh, maybe not. Maybe you, like, your spouse drug you here. Or you happen to be born here or you know, your job brought you here kicking and screaming. But most of the people that live in Myrtle Beach live here because like, this place hardly existed 50 years ago. You live here because you visited here and you're like, man, that's really cool. I'd love to like, have summer all the time. I like to live in Myrtle Beach in the endless summer. So you move down here and like a couple months in, a couple weeks, a couple years in, a couple decades in, and you're like, hey, okay, I'm tired of this. Like I, I'd never go to the beach. The traffic's bad in the summer. There's not much to do other than go to the beach and play like miniature golf. And I'm kind of done with that. Like what else is there to do? Like we, like we find what we think should be our paradise. We think it should be our Shangri-La, what we think should be our Xanadu. And it always ends up disappointing us. We always end up disenchanted. Man has always been trying to build a utopia. We've always been trying to build the perfect society, the perfect place. And if you end up in like, you ended up in Myrtle Beach and like it's not everything like you hoped it would be, then like you think, well, maybe if I lived in Myrtle Beach and I had a different job, then it would be better. Or maybe if I lived in Myrtle Beach and I lived in a different neighborhood, it would be better. Or maybe if I lived here in Myrtle Beach and I expanded my house, like maybe that would be better. Or if I had the perfect yard or if I had this or that and you add to it, you're searching for the utopia, you're searching for that endless summer. Or if you're in Asheville, you're searching for whatever the utopia is there or wherever you live, whatever you're looking for, we're chasing it all the time like a dog chasing its tail that can never quite catch it. Like you see it in front of you, you have whispers of it for a moment, you have a couple of good days, a couple of good months, but it kind of eludes you. You're searching for that utopia. You're searching for that, that perfect place. And the reason that is because that there's an underlying, there's several under, there's lots of, lots of underlying desires that drive us, but there's a couple that I want to talk about this morning. And one is that we want to feel like we're a part of something bigger than us. And really, underneath that, if we're honest with ourselves, is that we just don't want to feel alone. You know when you go home, you know that lonely feeling? When you go home, maybe you're surrounded by people. Your spouse, your girlfriend, boyfriend, your kids are there. Or you're at work and you just feel like you're separate from everybody else. We long to feel like we're a part of something that's bigger than us and that we matter in that that we play an important role, that people know us and we are known by them and we play an important role in their lives and they play an important role in my life and if I'm not there, then something is missing. I, want to long, I long to feel that. I don't want to feel alone or worthless and if you and I were honest with ourselves this morning, we have creeping moments of doubt. We're alone in the car. Maybe we're just making dinner leaving work and we see a group of people laughing over the side and we wonder, what if I'm just alone? We don't want to feel that feeling. And then not only do we want to feel like we're a part of something bigger than us, something that, that we matter to, but we want to be consistently amazed by beauty. We want to live in a sense of wonder and awe. You're chasing that feeling. When you move to Myrtle Beach, you're chasing that feeling. Whenever, whenever it was, it might have been a sunrise or a sunset. It might have been sitting in a 
boat fishing. It might have been sitting in the sand on a perfect day with a light breeze blowing and the waves are crashing. And whatever that moment is where you feel like, wow, this is beautiful. This is amazing. It might have been on the golf course or wherever it is where you're like, man, this is beautiful. This is amazing. They have that sense of awe or wonder and we consistently chase that. But the problem is we get diminishing results. It's like the Krispy Kreme law, right? The first donut is amazing. First hot and fresh now is amazing, right? It goes down like fast and it goes down easy. And the second one isn't quite as good. And the third one isn't good at all. And the, if you're honest with ourselves, the fourth one is just, I just feel like a blimp by that point. But I just keep on chasing that feeling of that first taste I added, that first hot fresh now going down. That's what it's like. We're always chasing that sense of awe or wonder that we felt at one point, but it has diminishing returns. So how do we respond? If I'm looking for Shangri-La, I'm looking for Xanadu, I'm looking to be a part of something that I matter, something that's bigger than myself, I'm looking to be consistently amazed by beauty, to to live in a sense of wonder and awe. And that's why we're chasing, look, that's why, that's why we're constantly buying the new gadget. That's why we're constantly buying the new car or trying to upgrade our house or build onto our house or whatever it is for you. The, there might be beauty, it might be clothes or whatever it is for you that, you're, that you and I chase is that we have a moment where you cut on the phone or you put on the clothes and you feel like some sort of awe and satisfaction, but it has diminishing returns over time. That's why we're consistently chasing the new and the wonderful. We're looking for something that will take away, take the bite off of our disappointment and disenchantment with life. See, the thing is that we all have our picture, it may not even be very clear in your mind, but some sort of cloudy, or it might be for you a clear picture of what heaven is for you. What's paradise for you? What's paradise for me? And you and I will worship whatever we have to worship that we think will take us to that heaven. We will worship whatever we think we have to worship that will take us to that paradise, whatever that paradise or that utopia or that Xanadu will be. And the reason that is because it's deeply ingrained in us as human beings. The story of the Bible starts with paradise. It starts with man and woman living in a paradise that God created in a meaningful role. God gave man a job to oversee creation. He gave man and woman a job to live in perfect partnership and love with each other. He gave woman the incredible, this incredible intrinsic beauty that we as guys do not have and this, the honor that it is to, for Eve to be the mother of life. And he puts them in the garden and his presence is there. He walks with them in the cool of the day And they are exploring his creation, consistently being amazed by all the things that he has made, all the things that he has done. And then walking with him and talking with him, the God, the creator of heaven and earth, and getting to know him and constantly being amazed by who he is as as they're getting to know him more and more. And yet, when sin came in, 
that was lost. And man and woman were driven from paradise, driven from the garden, driven from being a part of something in unity with the earth, in unity with the creator, to be a part of something that he created them to do and to be in direct communion with the creator of heaven and earth, they were driven from that presence and driven from that place. In fact, this is that there, there were these flaming swords that guarded them from even going back. Creation and man no longer worked in perfect harmony. God and man no longer lived in perfect harmony. The source of our meaning and wonder and awe was removed. And so this empty place within us, we're constantly trying to, like blind men in the dark, reach, trying, to, trying to bake a cake. We're constantly trying to, to put all the magical ingredients together that will suddenly give us a sense of being a part of something bigger and to give me a sense of being of awe and wonder. And God's plan since the beginning, since that garden, since the fall, even before the fall, was to redeem a people for himself and to take us back to the paradise that was lost. And so we see later on down the line Man kind of groping around, things have happened, and God picks and chooses Abraham, and he says, Abraham, I'm choosing you from out all the people of the world. I'm gonna have the nations of the world to be blessed through you. He says, through your seed that will come, I will bless the nations around you through them. And so then God's Abraham's seed, they, they have more and more babies, and they, all of a sudden they have a clan, and they end up in Egypt, and then they grow into a mighty nation, and you guys have seen the movie, they have a mighty nation, and they're stuck there, they're slaves, they're in bondage, and God picks Moses out in the backwoods, and he says, you will be my chosen person, and you're gonna go release my people, and he goes and leads the people out of the mightiest nation on earth at the time, and he leads them out into the wilderness, and in in the wilderness, God's chosen people, that he says that not only are you my chosen people for you, but you're my chosen people so that I might bless the nations around you, I might show myself to the nations around you. All of a sudden they leave Egypt and they're led by a pillar of cloud by, by day and by fire by night, which is God's glorious presence among his people. And then he leads them through. He comes down and visits them in their midst on this mountain where he gives, you guys have seen the movie again, where he gives Moses the law and he writes on the stone tablets, right? And Moses comes down and then, you know, you know like bad stuff happens and then fast forward down the future, like God says, here, I want you to build this tent in your midst. Like the, the, these hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions of, of Jews are traveling through the desert and he says, here, I want you to build this tent. It'll be the tabernacle and in the tabernacle, I will place my presence. Because you see, I want to be with you. I want you to be my people, but I can't mix with you because you're sinful. And for, for you to be in my presence as a sinful being would destroy you. And I'm working a plan, I'm working the plan. You see, stick with me. I'm working the plan. And I will dwell in you and among you in this tabernacle. And so Israel creates this tabernacle and in the middle of the desert, God's presence lives with them in their midst in the tabernacle. And he ends up leading them to the land that he, promised to, that he promised to them. He promised to Abraham the land flowing with milk and honey. And then fast forward several hundred years. And then David says, I don't want you to, your presence to dwell in a tent anymore. I want you to have a house that's fitting for you. And so he can't do it. His, but he saves up a lot of money, a lot of, a lot of supplies. He makes a plan 
According to God's plan and his son Solomon builds the temple and God's presence comes and fills the temple. And his presence came in such power, it said that when the presence came, the people who were around, they fell down because his presence, there was a sense of awe in their midst. And so Israel lives for hundreds of years with God's presence among them in the temple in their midst, but veiled and curtained and held up in this, the place that's called the holiest of holies inside this temple. But God's working the plan. He's working his plan. He's developing a, a people for his own possession where he would be in the midst of us. And then Jesus comes. And when the book of John opens, it says that Jesus came and he dwelt among us. And the, the word that's used there is he came and he tabernacled among us. Jesus came and he, God's presence, God's person dwelt in our midst among us. And he showed us what the Father was like by being among us as a man and yet 100% God at the same time. And then he suffered and he died for our sins. And then whenever he died on the cross, you guys may or may not know the story. It says that he died and whenever he died over over in the temple, what happens? This thick veil, this thick curtain that had kept God's presence from his people for their safety is torn. And it's torn from the top to the bottom, signifying that God's presence was now with his people. His presence had come to dwell in and among his people. And that is what is at stake when Paul is writing this section that John read to us from 1 Corinthians chapter three. See, Paul had come to, to Corinth and he had planted the church and he had planted the church by preaching a simple and ugly gospel of Jesus Christ, that you were a sinner needing help, needing redemption, and Jesus came and paid a penalty that you could not pay the Lord of all creation, he didn't come and gather an army and overcome his enemies. He came and he died. He came and lived as a peasant and died a, a terrible, horrible, horrific, embarrassing death on the cross. And that was the message that Paul came and preached. And that message is what started the church, as people believed in it and they became believers. They became Christians. And Paul leaves, and they're kind of hanging around. They're looking around each other, and they see the, the society in Corinth held up uh, wisdom. And it had, it had a lot of different religions, so it held up spirituality as well. And so they looked around at the people around them and say, hey, like, we're, we're religion, and that's cool, but, you know, our religion is kind of embarrassing. Like, we're worshiping a crucified Savior, we're saying that we were sinners and that we needed like somebody to come and redeem us and help us in ways that we could not help ourselves. We need help. We need something like this isn't very this isn't very appealing. This not look, doesn't look good on a billboard. If we want to we want to not look so weird to our friends and we want to get more converts, then we need to kind of soften this a little bit. And so they became spiritual, and they began to like sort of tweak the religion so it looked more like the society around them. They sort of 
put the crucified Jesus kind of on the back burner and talked about how we should become wiser and like God helped us to become wiser. God helped us become more spiritual and that's something that could appeal to them and it could appeal to the Corinthians around them. And Paul says like by you doing this, you're leaving not only, you're not just leaving the message that I gave you, but you're leaving the heart of the gospel. Because you see, God has called his people out of this world to be a prelude of the age to come. That, that paradise that was lost that we talked about, that he's, gonna, he's redeeming us to take us back to, that is the age that's to come. And he's called us to be different, not just so that we would be moral. Look, the, the reason that we have the church isn't so that you would be a nicer person or that you wouldn't lie more or you wouldn't sleep around as much. The reason we have the church is by we admitting that we are a messed up people who needed redemption and that Jesus paid the penalty that you and I could not pay. Jesus was perfect in the way that you and I could not be perfect. He's called us to be different and to be distinct not just to be different, not just by, by being good, but we're called to be different and distinct because we together are the temple, the dwelling place of God's presence. Look at this passage. According to the grace of God given to me like a skilled master builder, this is verse 10, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. So he's saying, I came and I planted the church, now somebody else is, is, uh, is the pastor there. Other people are leaders there. Other people are teaching there. But let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. He's saying, I've already laid the foundation, which is the simple, ugly, yet beautiful gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, those are three things that, um, three things that aren't flammable. Or wood, hay, or straw, obviously those things that are. Each one's work will become manifest. It will be clear what you're building with. For the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. I, I remember whenever I was, uh, when I was younger, um, Miranda is six years younger than me, and she loved Legos. And uh, so I, I would like, I was not really old enough to, to be into Legos anymore, but I would see her like, making Legos, and because I was an older brother, I would come over to her and say, all right, here's what you gotta do if you build something with Legos. Like, she'd build a little house, and she had her people or whatever. I said, all right, here's the, here's the test that you have to do if you build a house. Like, you have to make sure like, it like, can withstand a storm, because you can't just build any house like, and, and put your Lego people in there, and it'd and it be dangerous. And so what you have to do is, so here's the test, and so I would, I would take the house, and I would pick it up about a, a foot or two off the floor and drop it back on the ground. And if it survived, I was like, okay, that survived like level one. Let's see if it can survive a level two. And I would hold it a little bit higher and then drop it. And if it survived then, I would hold it higher and say, and drop it. And I would hold it up as high as I could possibly get it and, and then drop it and say, see, it couldn't level, it couldn't withstand this level. You need to like work on it. It needs to be, I was like, like the building, the Lego building inspector. You need to make sure it's better. I would do the same thing with cars and stuff. And so she learned to like make it like a tank, man. She would survive any sort of, any sort of drop. But like Paul is saying like, each of us are building on the foundation. We're getting to what that is in a minute. And he's saying, someone is going to come along and test what you're building and see if it withstands. If it withstands the test, thumbs up. But if it doesn't, you're going to suffer loss. Sorry, Miranda, that house just 
splattered all over the floor. You see, no, let's, let's finish the section, I'm sorry. Um, the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If, uh, if, the foundation, if the work that anyone's built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only through fire. We'll come back to that. But verse 16, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? You see, the church has always been God's plan to show forth his beauty and his glory among all the nations. And so when he, when he told Abraham, he said, I'm gonna make your father many nations and you'll, and you'll, you'll bless the nations around you, the nations will be blessed around you because of you. He's saying, but that is because my, I will showcase my, my glory, my presence through you to the people around you. And it gets bigger and bigger each step that we went into. Now God's presence dwells in us and among us as believers. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ today, God's presence dwells in you, but he's not just talking to you individually in this passage. He's talking about us together as believers. And so I don't know what you and I think about church. It might be a place that you come to or like a, a club that you're a part of, but God's idea of the church is that it is his primary and his only plan to show forth his beauty and his glory to the people around us who do not yet know him. The way that he shows forth his beauty and his glory is through you and me. Now this thing that we're gathered here together in these folding metal chairs and this school uh, gym is about more than us just gathering together because Randy wants to talk or the band needs to play or I need some place to go to on Sunday morning to punch a card. This is God's plan to showcase who he is to the watching world around us. And so the challenges to the plan. The reason that Paul is writing to the Corinthians is that we get different ideas about what this thing is, about what church is. We think the wrong things about the church. Some, some of us think about the church as like a club. Like a club is something that I belong to that I don't really have to belong to. They share I may want to join if they, ha they share similar interests or similar backgrounds. I might join a, a club because it's going to, uh, it might be like some sort of civic club. I'm going to meet other people in my industry, in my field that's going to further me. I might join a golf club because for some unknown reason I like to golf. I, I might join a tennis club because I like to play tennis. I might join a, my granddad as a part of a hunting club because I like to hunt. You join a club because they have similar interests to you. And some of us view church like that. Hey, these people are kind of moral. I, I believe in Jesus. They believe in him too. I was grown up in church, and so I kind of think that way. And so it's sort of a, a club that I belong to, some people who, who share this similar kind of thinking, a similar kind of background that I do. And so we get together once or twice a week, and we do our club things. I pay my dues like I do at a club. We hear somebody talk, and we do our little rituals, and then I leave because I, I'm a part of a club, and I can feel some connectedness with some people who share some common interests. But Paul is saying that the church is, goes far deeper 
The purpose of the church, the mission of the church goes far deeper than a club. He says the church is called to be God's temple, God's tabernacle in the world that people see him in our midst. Some of us think of church like a store or a restaurant. Hey, I like to shop at Walmart because it's the cheapest price. So I like to go to X church because it doesn't require much of my time or it doesn't require much of my money or doesn't require much of my attention. Or I like to shop at Target because I'm a Target, because I'm a little bit classier than the Walmart crowd. Or I wouldn't be seen in a discount store. I like to shop at this store because I like the surroundings. It feels luxurious. That's the kind of church that I like to go to. It feels luxurious. It gives me what I'm looking for in return. I'm willing to pay extra for quality. And I'm willing to give some extra time or some extra money for some quality preaching or quality entertainment or quality singing or Whatever it is that I get in return for that, the same question that I have about a store or a restaurant, am I getting my money's worth in return or am I getting my time's worth in return are the questions that you and I ask about church. But Paul's saying the church is far deeper. The purpose and the mission of the church is far greater and far deeper than if it was simply a, like a store or a restaurant that I could choose to go to or not go to today because I get what I'm looking for in return. I get my money's worth or my time's worth in return. Some of us think of the church like a safety net. The church is a safety net to be there whenever I'm in trouble or I need them. And so when times are tough, I'll show up. And I will sing and I'll read and I'll engage with people. And hey, if times are really even tough, I'll go to some extra meetings. It's sort of a safety net. Like if I do that, God will somehow respond to me and help me or I'm in trouble and I need people to come around me and help me and so I'll show back up at church. It's like it's a safety net. But Paul says it's the purpose of the church runs far deeper and far greater than if it was simply a club or a restaurant or a store or a safety net for us. We look for the wrong things to give the church. Some of us think that we give money, like a store or a restaurant, we give money in exchange for services. And so I, I come up and I give money, and that supports the, in some other churches, as it supports, uh, maybe one day, that supports the pastor, that supports the, keep the lights on, and them to, you know, make these banners, and do the things that they have to do to make this run, and, and, and in return, I get, like, a service in return whether it's the actual service that I go to or uh, whenever I'm in the hospital, I can call them and they're gonna come and show up with me or if I uh, have a, a need, they'll come and make some food for me or there's something in return that I get. Some of us think that we give time in order to serve in certain areas so we can pay our dues. So yeah, I'll serve the nursery. I'll do whatever has to be done and the, the different things that we have to do on a Sunday morning or other times, and that that's sort of a, that's my way of paying a service, and I get services back. It's sort of like at, at work. Any guys ever you have kids at work, and uh, the other parents come in and bring their fundraisers, and what do they what do you say to each other? You got to buy from my kids' fundraiser because I buy from your kids' fundraiser. And sometimes we view it church as sort of like that. Hey, I'll watch your kids in nursery because you're going to watch my. I do my. I'll pay my day if you pay your day, and we kind of exchange back and forth the time and sort of I'm paying my dues. Or some of us view church as a platform for our gifts or talents. 
if I'm not going to sing a karaoke night, I have to find some place to sing. And so I'm going to sing in the church band or I'm going to play an instrument. Or where else am I going to play? Or uh, I like to talk. And so I'm going to get up and talk to people. And for some reason, you guys will sit down here for a few minutes and listen to me. Or whatever the case may be, like, like my gifts or my talents is a place for me to, to do that. A place for me to, that's how I think about giving to church. And some of us, we look for the wrong things from church. We look for the church to entertain us. Hey, I'll come and I'll be a part as long as the message is good or the band is good or the sound's not too loud or people aren't too pushy or they're friendly or they're not too friendly or whatever the case may be. We look to the church to care for us in our times and needs or we look to the church to help me be a better person or we look to the church to help me feel better about myself or life and we judge whether it's a successful church by after I leave after the service or a meeting, do I feel better or more positive about myself or my life? But all these come from a wrong, broken view about what the church is and what it's for. They are right if the church is here simply to entertain you or to coddle you or me or to make you and I feel happy or feel better about life. But if the church is God's chosen agency to showcase his beauty and his glory to the watching world around us, then the stakes are much higher. We see, if you have your Bible, you can look in the book of Acts chapter two, what happens when God's when God births the church and it's births the church in its current form. When God's presence come and comes and dwells among his people after the, the, the veil is torn, Jesus hangs out with his disciples for a few days and he tells them, I want you to wait in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes. And when the Holy Spirit comes upon them in Acts chapter two, it changes the whole nature of the deal. God's people are now his, his presence is now living in and among his people. And when he does, it gets crazy. Peter gets up and he preaches the first, uh, the first sermon and thousands of people came to, to faith in the first day. They had a mega church from day one. In verse 42 of chapter two, it says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, and the breaking of bread, and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. God called his church to be the presence, his presence among his people whenever um, in the world, and whenever he does that, awe comes upon us. And we, we find a connection to something larger than us, something bigger than us. We're constantly amazed as we see his presence in us and among us at work, redeeming us, changing us, calling other people to know him. We see his presence among us and we live in a constant state of, of beholding beauty and standing in awe and wonder of who God is and what he does. And how do they respond to him? It says they, they respond by devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. That's what it looks like when we're talking about when we gather here on Sunday mornings to worship. There are some days that you and I don't want to come here, and that's fine. Let's own that. Let's be real. 
Some days you and I don't feel particularly spiritual. We don't feel, we feel like God's 100 million miles away from us. Our life, we've kind of forgotten him. We feel dead inside to him. And we, but yet we show up on Sunday mornings. Why? Because we devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching. We devote ourselves to God's plan, even when it doesn't feel great, because we know that by being engaged in the plan, we're being engaged in God's great plan for humanity. And then it says they gather not only for the apostles' teaching, but to the fellowship and breaking of bread and prayers. There's a picture of what it means to be a part of a, a small group like our, like our C groups where we gather with each other in house to house and we study the word together and we pray for each other. Even when we don't feel like, when I don't feel like being there, when it's been a busy and a crazy day and a busy and crazy week, I show up and we break bread. We have dinner together. We partake of communion together on Sundays. We're partaking in God's plan for the world to showcase his glory in the church. We see that also responded by engaging in personal discipleship. We see Jesus with Peter, James, and John. He had a special discipleship relationship with them. We see Peter. We see Paul with Timothy. He has a special relationship with him. We see even in uh, in uh, Corinth, we see how Priscilla and Aquila took uh, Apollos aside and they taught him more clearly what the word of God said about who Jesus was. We see personal discipleship. So we see large gatherings. We see small gatherings of people together encouraging each other. And we see one-on-one discipleship. And that's the rhythm of the Christian life that you and I engage in day-to-day, week-to-week, when sometimes we feel great and we're just loving Jesus and we want to sing from the bottom of our lungs and some days we don't feel so great. We're engaging in God's plan for the redemption, redemption of the world. And look what happened as a result as God's people, God's presence dwelt among his people. And he started showing himself to them and showing himself to the watching world around them, showing his glory and his beauty to the church and through the church to the world around them. Look in verse 47. Praising God, well, we'll start in verse 46. And day by day, attending the temple together, that's the, this rhythm of life that I'm talking about, attending the temple together, that's hearing the word, worshiping like we are here, and breaking bread in their homes, that's the small groups. And they received bread, sorry, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Verse 47, praising God and having favor with all the people and the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. So the picture is that as God's presence dwells in us and among us as a church, people who are around us who do not know him look inside as it were and they see how you and I live. They see God's presence in our midst and they are drawn to him. Look in chapter five, verse 12 through 14. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico, this large large gathering that they're having outside the temple or in the temple, in the temple courts. None of the rest dared join them. So the, the Jews around them, they saw them doing this and they stayed away from them. But... This is one of the craziest sinners. None of the rest dared to join them, but the people held them in high esteem. They looked on them from the outside and they held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the, to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. 
God's plan from the beginning of time has been that the church would be the showcase, that he would showcase his glory and beauty to the world. And so how you and I think about what the church is and our relationship to each other. The church isn't a a meeting or a corporation. The church is us together as believers. And what we think about our participation in that is incredibly important. It's God's life and death work, the church is. The church is God's life and death work. Think about that. It's his great masterpiece. He sent his son to live and to die to start the church. It's his life and death's work. And if it's his life and death's work, it should be yours and mine. So the question that we should ask as we end here is what is your life's work? Is your life's work in building some sort of personal utopia? Some personal picture of what you think heaven or perfection or a great life is? Is it equal a perfect house and perfect skin and perfect hair and a perfect spouse and perfect kids and a perfect yard and living in a perfect setting? That will always disappoint. Or is your life's work called to join with Jesus in his life and death's work? To create a foretaste in our midst of the paradise that is to come whenever he returns and makes all things new. When there's no longer the disharmony between us and the earth, between us and each other and us and God, and it's all reunited in perfection and beauty. That's what the church is supposed to be. So it's a lot bigger than our gatherings, a lot bigger than how much I give or don't give or how much I volunteer or don't volunteer or what community group I'm in or what I do, this and that. It's about being a part of God's plan as a people to declare his glory among the nations. It's bigger than you and me. It gives great meaning to life. Something bigger than us that we're a part of that you matter in. You're a part of that body. It's what our soul longs for. And whenever he is in our midst and doing that, you and I stand in constant awe and wonder at who he is and what he's done. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for... um, your goodness to us. I thank you for the fact that you have saved us and called us to be yours. Uh, Father, I pray that uh, you would uh, guide us as each of us try to figure out what our part, what our role is in that bigger picture. We try to correct our faulty and broken ideas about um, what the church is and our part in that. And we see it as the glorious, beautiful, big thing that it is. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Doxa Church. We are so glad that you took the time to join us today. At Doxa, we exist to make disciples who joyfully worship Jesus with their whole lives. We invite you to join us. Doxa Church meets at 10 a.m. every Sunday at River Oaks Elementary School. 
For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org.